Hi, my name is Mary Spender and welcome to Series 2, Episode 3 of Chusted Talks. This series will consist of 10 interviews in total with some of my favourite musicians. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to this podcast, wherever you may be. Remember, you can catch the full video interview on my YouTube channel too. This week I chat to Adam Neely just before he was headed off on tour to India with his band Sungazer. If you haven't seen Adam's intricate video essays on music theory, then I thoroughly recommend them. And he's just about to reach a YouTube milestone, so subscribe to him over there too. This whole series is brought to you by DistroKid, my favourite music distribution service, which gets your music into online stores and streaming platforms, and they've been a huge supporter of this channel and podcast. There is a link in the show notes for you to get 7% off your first year, so let's get into the show. Tuesday. 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 Tell me about India. What's happening? Uh, India is a large country in the middle of Asia. <laughs> uh, so uh, a good friend, Shub, is a guitar player, and he has a really amazing band. And he's bringing my band, Sungazer, to India mm-hmm. um, as part of like this whole thing with some a couple of jazz festivals. So we're doing the Jaipur Jazz Festival and something else. So we're there for like a week and a half, I guess. But Wow. Um, yeah, it's part of this whole Shubgazer thing, which is just like our excuse to call whatever we're doing the two names of the band Shubgazer. It's not funny, but we just call it Shubgazer. So you've already done so much performing already, just like in the last what six months, you've just upped your game completely. Yeah, um, it's been a conscious effort to do that. Basically, um, you know, I was getting tired of just making things just on YouTube because YouTube's great, YouTube's awesome, but I wasn't playing my music out. I felt like there was this kind of hole that I hadn't quite filled of like original music that I had been working on for a long time, but it just wasn't doing anything. And it was basically a conscious effort. Like I hit up Sean, their drummer for Sungazer, and said, hey man, like, um, if we started touring a lot more this year, would you have time to do that? Since he is a touring uh, drummer based in Europe, and the artist that he was working with, and he still is working with, um, was touring quite heavily. So I didn't know if he would have the time to do Sungazer. Uh, so yeah, it's been kind of awesome to just start up and do this. It's like a whole learning experience. It's something new entirely. I'm very excited for it. <laughs> And is that how your 2020 is just going to look? Just like touring literally over the world? Right now it is, yeah. Um, I mean, we're not. it's not just Sungazer. I'm still doing like talking things. Like I'm going to colleges. I'm talking at South by Southwest. Yay, again. Um, yeah, that's going to be cool. It's going to be like an AI. I'm going to be talking about AI music, which is... Very exciting. What are you going to be saying at South by Southwest? I'm going to be talking about, the name of the talk is The Aesthetics of Future Music. So a lot of the time when, you know, you have tech enthusiasts talking about AI, they talk about like, oh, AI is going to be able to create new music. It's going to be able to, you know, be an assistant for composers and songwriters or can just generate music from the blue. But nobody's ever talked about or even thought about what the music's going to sound like because it, nobody 
things to do that. Like, what is the music going to sound like? Is it going to be syncopated? Is it going to be, like, what, what are the textures? What are the sounds of AI music? So I've been talking with a bunch of people. I've been working a little bit with a, uh, basically a, I want to say an AI collective or like some people who work with generating machine learned music and just trying to figure out like what it's going to sound like basically. Um, and it's something that I'm really interested in. I, I don't know, like the future is unknown. I want to figure out what it's going to sound like, how people are going to work with it. And just 10 years from now, the, the pitch is like, what, what are, what are, what is Gen Z going to be listening to 10 years from now? Is it completely, is it a curveball to sort of suggest like, if lo-fi music and the craze that's going on there with people taking samples off splice or you know making their own or whatever just some of that relatively i don't want to uh annoy people by saying this but relatively like simplistic minimalist music there we go like it can definitely surely be created by a computer yo yeah it definitely can be but the problem is is that it doesn't sound that's some something that sounds like music being made now but how is the music going to develop is it going to develop if AI is just put in control of everything, does it just stay as this recurrent loop of just the same thing over and over and over again? Because that's what people say about pop music today, it's the same thing, but it really isn't. Music sounds way different than it did 10 years ago. But if AI is put in control of things, is it just going to just be generating and iterating the same thing over and over and over again, or will it create something else with human input? Um, that's what I want to find out. Uh, but I, I, that's a good point, and I want to think about that, and I'm probably going to mention that in the talk now, of, you know, just recombining elements like on Splice, that's something pretty easy to do, and an AI can do that. Um, so it's, it brings up broader questions of human creativity. Like, we somehow are able to generate new music and generate new sounds, so what then is necessary for a computer to do that? It's so exciting though, like it, it's, hmm, I kind of, you know, even just in terms of like technology and how things have developed from, yeah, 10 years ago in 2010 um, and seeing where things are now, like it is a hell of a lot different. Like it doesn't, it doesn't really feel, I don't know, in, in my own personal terms, I don't sort of feel like it's all that different, but then I didn't even have an iPhone. Yeah, smartphones, um, just the, if you even think of that, like smartphones, the way that we listen to music, streaming, like everything has changed. It's been completely, completely different. And yet we don't really feel that way. So I'm sure 10 years from now, it's going to be the same thing, except maybe when we don't feel that way. Um, what brave new world and the people in them. Uh, the, the uh, just quote Aldous Huxley slash... Shakespeare. I'm trying to be, I'm trying to sound smart right now. So anyway. <laughs> but that's your whole ethos, just trying to sound smart, I'm right? I'm trying so hard. <laughs> Please think that I'm smart. We're, <laughs> we're all trying. We're all trying. Yeah. Um, I, I was listening to a, a an interview with um, obviously a guy crushing YouTube right now, Mr. Beast, about where YouTube is going to be in 10 years time. And he really simplified it. He was just like, well, YouTube is owned by Google. Already all the searches go through Google and like YouTube is the second biggest search engine. 
So if Google owns YouTube and he, he spoke about it in a way I'm going to absolutely ruin how he how he put it. But he was just like in 10 years time, like it's only going to be bigger. That was basically the summary. It'll have evolved, most definitely, but it'll only be bigger, whereas other people are worrying about whether or not YouTube is even going to be around. And all I think about is like how permanent YouTube is in terms of just infrastructure physically. Like you think of the YouTube spaces, you think of it being owned by Google. No one's wondering whether or not Google's going to be gone in 10, 10 years' time. Um, do you think if you're sort of moving your attention towards kind of it is scalable because obviously you can just do bigger and bigger shows but do you think there is almost like a I don't know it's just a battle within us isn't it between the live show and the videos and making sure we keep both up yeah you're okay I I get the sentiment yeah I get the sentiment here yeah so you're 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 asking why would I abandon something that's growing and for performing live shows, which is like a dead end. I, that's not really what you're asking, but there's a sentiment there of like one one thing is growing, one thing is being going to be more stable, one thing is going to be more permanent and more pervasive. While as the other thing, live performances and touring, that's on shaky ground right now. Um, I'm not sure if that's what you're asking, but that's a statement. And it's something that I do think about. And the thing is, is I will always have YouTube to go back to because it's growing and I'm still making things and I'm still, you know, using YouTube as a promotional thing for live performance and vice versa. I can always go back to YouTube. A part of it is the idea of just expanding my portfolio because even, even still, there's a respectability gap on YouTube. And I, I think you were interviewed for, there's this, um, there's this, this Mel magazine, that was an interesting article. Yeah, it was good. Um, the uh, Yeah, there's a respectability gap because among certain people, YouTube is like, amazing. Like, oh my gosh, you do YouTube, that's incredible. And for a lot of other people, not just in music, but everywhere, YouTube is just like, oh, that's the place with PewDiePie and the racists. And it, there, there's this thing, it doesn't seem like it's a professional class of creators in society yet. It might eventually get there, but for right now, it still has this very DIY, like other aspect to it. Um, and so that hasn't changed in 10 years. Um, do you know Freddie Wong by any chance or Freddie W? He is a, a great director and he made, he made this uh, channel called Rocket Jump and he's done like all of these like um, movies and shows and, and things basically with the budget, like very, very shoestring, shoestring budget, but essentially as an alternative to Hollywood, they created the film studio and just were releasing videos all the time on YouTube. They got billions of views. It was absolutely incredible. Some of these uh, older videos were very, very well viewed. They were trending all the time. And he did this interview with some other people at Corridor Digital, basically saying that he could not get a gig in Hollywood because nobody in Hollywood cared that he had this studio that was churning out these really high quality videos and because the whole old system, the whole respectability thing still is there. And that's 10 years after the fact that he did all this stuff. So I've been thinking about that more and more recently. It's like, we're growing. 
you and I and like all, a lot of the other music YouTubers, this is a niche that's growing and it's going to keep growing. But where, where does that lead to? It leads to more growth. It leads to us doing more things, hopefully. But it's always going to be stuck on YouTube unless there is some kind of connection to another industry or connection to something else. And it, that might change because the younger generation is growing up with YouTube in ways that they didn't before. But it will be a while, and it's important to always be sowing seeds elsewhere, I think. Um, that said, you know, everybody is doing what they're doing, and everybody has their own goals. But my goals usually, my goals are to play my music live, and you can't do that on YouTube. <laughs> you can play your music on YouTube, but you can't do it live. It's very interesting to figure out what you care about as well. Um, I've, what do you care about? <laughs> well, I I definitely care about I'm I'm not going to be so arrogant to sort of say I don't care about people's opinions in terms of like how they see me as a credible artist or anything like that because obviously I do. I'm a musician like my my insecurities <laughs> love me, please. Exactly, love me, please. Um that's the title of my next record. Um <laughs> however, I'm wondering whether for me personally, because it makes sense for you, like you're actually getting out on the road um, and you've got the musicians behind it, you've got the music done to be able to go and do that. I obviously really enjoyed going on the road end of last year. I just see sometimes the battles that I need to fight as being a little bit uh, larger than I ever thought at this point. Like I maybe I was naive to sort of think that it would open a few more doors and it definitely has opened doors having a YouTube channel. But do I really care? And it's literally a question I'm asking myself over from it within the last 24 hours, just something's changed in, in my life, uh, career wise, nothing major, just like an opportunity opened and then it closed like within two weeks. Um, and it's like a, initially, the first thing I do is go, what did I do wrong? How, and, and, and then I realize like, it's people, it's things going on in other people's lives that I don't have control over and that I shouldn't have control over. Then it's also that there are some things that I can do myself and I really respect you, uh, you know, made sure that you went and got the gigs yourself initially. And now it's sort of, you know, now you've got help, but you went out and you fought for it. And um, I've done that a tinsy wincy bit with, with support shows, but I probably need to do it on, on a grander scale if I'm really going to pursue it. But it's really figuring out where does your energy lie right now? And my energy does not lie there just yet, but it doesn't mean I'm going to just cower down and just go, right, okay, live shows are not a thing for me they're not a thing for me for the next six months, but that's okay because even if I was booking a tour now, I wouldn't be booking until, you know, I, I would be booking for September right now. So can I put a few pieces in place to make sure that I've got some gigs in September, not a whole major tour like I hoped. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just sort of figuring out who do you really care about? Do you care about music industry professionals giving a shit about you? Excuse my language, but do you really care or do you care about reaching your audience as quickly 
as you possibly can um, and making sure that they know that you're trying. <laughs> I guess that's that's the sort of battle I'm in right now because I'm just like, I want people to know that I really, really want to go on the road and I want to tell people that, but they it is not as easy as doing it all yourself, like making a YouTube channel. The, the amount of friction involved in uploading a YouTube video, there is none. You make, you have an idea, you work on it, you work your ass off on it, but it's just you. You, you do everything. And because you do everything, it's easy in one sense. For, to book a tour or to go to someplace, it, it's not just like, oh, I'm just going to write an email and they'll say yes and then I'll go there. It, there's so many other moving parts involved and there's so many other people that can say yes or no to that. And so it feels really disheartening sometimes when people say like, please come to Brazil. Like, dear Lord, would I love to go to Brazil. But it's just, it's just not, there's not the, uh, the infrastructure. Like, there's not, there, there's too, it's too difficult, basically. Um, at this stage of the game for my career, for like a little, you know, jazz fusion band to like fly to do a Brazilian tour. Um, that's, it's, it's when people get like, I don't want to say upset or disappointed that I can't go to a place or don't tour more frequently or, or all that, all that stuff. It's because YouTube is way easier to see me. It's, it's a, so easy to see and consume the content. And they, there's all this, this assumption that's like, oh, well, they're doing really well on YouTube. They can go other pla places in the world. But it's logistically, there's too many people saying no, too many people to like um, appease, basically, with the touring. Um, and it, like you said, it's an energy thing. Am I willing to put in this energy? I, it, you know, I need yes and no. Um, there are, it is a lot more difficult than I assumed, actually. Um, there's a lot more moving parts. Uh, the people who have been touring this whole time, you know, I'm starting to see how they do it and realize, wow, you guys really, there's a whole system here. There's a whole industry around touring that I just had no idea about because I was so in my, um, I was so in my, like, session musician world, my YouTube world, and now I'm in this other world. Um, it's, it's a learning thing, but, you know, it's, it, it all depends on where you are um, in your career. And YouTube is a, YouTube's awesome. Like, there's a reason why we do this. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's just the difference between permissionless and then, a, you know, permission. And I think maybe I'm just not that good at asking permission over things. And I, I'm, I'm trying to find hacks. I'm trying to think of ways to do everything. There's so many damn emails, so many emails, so many email threads. So many emails, um, so much admin, so, so much operation um, behind everything. What I've realized about touring is the reason, it, you know, however long ago, it wasn't even all that long ago that it's kind of changed, but before cell phones, um, before smartphones, um, people would disappear. They'd make a record, they'd be everywhere, and then they'd disappear for two years touring. And although you can stay connected now, I do still feel the same way. Until you have, again, more infrastructure behind you, 
to help with those videos that you kind of need to create on a weekly basis or whether you store some videos and release them while you're away. I've been batching. Yeah, I've been working on that. That's ki- it's killing me right now. I'm I'm only one I'm only one video. Like I have next week's video. But but even then that just like killed me. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Well, but making content on top of content is it's so tricky. And every time someone asks me if they if they should do YouTube, I'm like yeah, get 10 videos under your belt first and then upload them because maybe you'll actually always stay 10 videos ahead. But at the same time, the whole point is that you need to be able to move quickly and, and um, you know, move things around if, if you can. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. What's the biggest lesson you have learned in terms of, you know, all these touring artists and then you re- witnessing that there is a whole thing around it? Stay hydrated. Don't drink too much. Take care of yourself and your body. Um, focus on what it is you're doing and don't try and split your attention to creating YouTube videos while you're on the road. Um, splitting the attention, that's the, the thing that really kills me. Um, I've figured out little ways of vlogging, meaning like I'm not going to try and tell a story while I'm here. I'm just like, hey, guys, we're here at Soundcheck. This is some stuff that we can, you know... Do I, I'm not I'm not paying any attention to the story of what's going on. I'm literally just filming little things here and there so I can fo- stay focused on the music making as well as the logistics of being on the tour. Um, Rhett I know does tons of tour vlogs, and he's working as a sideman, so he doesn't have as much um, headspace dedicated to being the front man, which is a front person. But at the same time, the amount of st- the amount of stuff that he vlogs, I, I'm just like, how the hell are you doing this, man? It, it's such a, it's such a like you you have to split yourself in two, because you are doing two jobs at the same time. And people think that when you're touring, um, you're just performing like that one hour <laughs> slot. It's it's so much more than that. That one hour slot is your vacation from tour, um, and so everything else that goes around around it. Uh, you know, you you have to really be in it, really be focused. So those are the things that I've learned. Take care of your body. Don't try and vlog too much. Um, otherwise, you'll just get burnt out. Fortunately, I've only done, like, shorter runs. And if I was to do a much longer run, I would have to, like, really focus on all of that stuff. Um, yeah. I have a... This fall, we'll, we'll be doing longer, like, three- to four-week things. So far, it's always been two weeks at the top. To to make yourself have longevity in that industry and then be able to keep up YouTube at the same time, yeah. I think the shorter runs are the way because you can sort of survive a few weeks here and there. But going going away for six months or something, I, I can't imagine it. I can't imagine it. I think I'd die. <laughs> Another thing is it's just like it takes you out of your routine and then you can come back into your routine when you're making YouTube videos. Um, sometimes I've just like not bothered to upload a video, which is, it's awesome, by the way, to not worry about uploading a video. Oh my God. Just to like give yourself a week's rest on videos. And I'm like, is this how normal people live? (laughs) They're not thinking about a video every week. Um, but at the same time, then I get antsy and then I really want to make a video. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's a brave new world. Uh, not to bring it back to literature, but it's uh, it's a new thing that not everybody has figured out quite yet. How do you create content while you're touring, 
how do you like balance everything? And forget having a social life. Just don't even bother. <laughs> yeah, what I found, and I like your uh, being on stage is the holiday part of touring. It's so true because that that is the the time when you can actually breathe and do the thing you're good at. That's that's the easy bit. The the twenty three and a half sometimes if you're doing a support tour <laughs> yeah. um, is uh, 23 and a half hours. Oh, you're just living and breathing, surviving the day to get to that half hour. And um, I've, I've witnessed it take its toll on musicians really hard. And, but again, it's the same, like they'll take a break from touring and then they'll get the itch again and then they'll want to go out again. So it's sort of just like, I guess the, it's not the work, life balance thing it's the work work balance <laughs> which I guess is the key to being a youtuber it's like don't expect yourself to have a social life really at all um if you're really trying to grow something and and hit it hard but if you're trying to run a youtube channel and tour at the same time then it's it's the work work balance it's just the two different jobs you're so right like it's such enjoyable work after all it's just like how do you make sure that you're doing the best that you actually can for an audience that's paying to see you live or, or, you know, supporting your videos in some way. It's just making sure you're, you're not completely under that sort of weighted pressure. When you did the support, the support run, when was that? That was, uh, November, November. Yeah. Um, how did, were you able to vlog? Were you able to do YouTube stuff while you were on the road? Yes. And it's February and I haven't edited the videos. <laughs> yeah. Now you just have all this footage and then you're like, what do I do with it? And you're just drowning in all this good stuff, maybe. Yeah. Really good stuff. Really good stuff. Like I've gone through it. Um, I think I had hoped for more videos to come out of it than I probably will be able to manage. But, um, I loved your, you know, full half hour tour documentary. I'm not going to do that one again. <laughs> well, the the thing I kind of want to do um, is, is kind of do something a, a bit similar. But um, I, for my Patreon supporters every day, did like a little summary when I was back on back in the van uh, every morning. Luckily, if I hadn't had Rob driving me, I would have definitely not been able to do this. But I just wrote a little short diary entry, journal entry. We'll make it sound hip, journal entry. Um, and I'm now realizing like, oh, that's going to be really handy for me to remind myself of the best and the worst bits because I was pretty honest in it. And I was like, okay, this morning I woke up with a migraine and it was our actual, we actually had a morning off and I was ill. And then we had to be in the van and then we got stopped at the border. So our day off, then became like a full day of just awfulness um, and delays. And then we arrive late to soundcheck, like, and then you just have to jump on stage and then you have to go to bed um, or you have to get to your bed, then go to sleep, have the four or five hours. And if, if you're lucky and then get up and do it all again. Um, but it was, but yet it was one of the hardest things I've done in the last few years definitely not one of the hardest things I've ever done um because I used to work normal jobs um but uh it was it was yeah it was tricky but now I think what I'll do is do a a you know a it's kind of like a daily uh well like a weekly vlog of that and do the voiceover and read out my journal entry and then just edit edit all the all the clips um, and not to not worry too much about 
a story other than just saying exactly how it was each day. But that's the only way I think I can manage um, getting that video made just to show that I did it as well. Because it was, God, it was so enjoyable getting up on stage every night. Oh my God, yeah. How, uh, how much are you thinking about story when you're shooting? That week, n not at all. I'm actually trying to learn to tell the story later. Yeah, the thing I'm always afraid of uh, is I feel like it's so much better and more authentic to be telling a story as you're doing it. Like, all right, now this is happening right now. Oh my God, I wonder if we can do it. And I always feel like it's it's harder to tell the story afterwards, although it's in some way easier. It just doesn't feel as like authentic, getting that authentic YouTube experience. And and so I'm I'm trying to learn how to do it less in the moment because um, I would you know I always turn on my like in studio explainer voice and it, it never feels right. I could I have learned a lot from you about like just how like. Hey, we're here. This is what's going on. I hope this is happening. Like just talking to the camera like that. And you know, the in-studio explainer voice is great for when I'm in the, in the studio, but like actually in the moment, I was like I'm too self-conscious about everything. Um and you can't afford to be that when you're thinking about, okay, the you know, I got to remember on this song to play this thing differently and just like stay focused on the music that I'm trying to make rather than stay focused on the story of the YouTube video of the vlog that might get released or might not get released. Yeah, your music is is somewhat intense to be able to perform live every night and you, you really have to be in it. Whereas luckily for my little rocky songs, I can just kind of forget everything. I don't have to worry about where I am or what I'm doing, especially especially being solo. I can hide behind my instruments and the flash though. You if that makes any sense. I can hide behind, like I can move my fingers, that's great, but like I'm not ex as exposed as you're singing solo on stage. And I feel like it's a very different thing, but it's less exposed, my thing. Um, really? For, I'd oh, say your yeah. thing is way more exposed. Oh my gosh, if I just play, there's like lots of musicians playing notes and people are like, oh my gosh, that's great. But it's like not a, it's not my person exposed as opposed to a singer singing songs um, with lyrics at, alone on a stage. Everybody is like glued to you, rather glued to the spectacle of notes, I guess. I don't know, I, I've, that's, some, that's something that I think, I've, I've talked to some people about this, but uh, instrumentalists can hide. We can definitely hide, and so it's less about, you know, if I make a mistake, that sucks, but at the same time, there's gonna be about 50 other notes that will come very soon after. Ah, where I see if I make a mistake, and unless people really, really know the music back to front, I can either be like, yeah, I was changing it up because I'm solo on stage and I can do what I want <laughs> um, and own it. Or, or, you know, they wouldn't even notice because you just sort of adapt and, you know, I think that's, I think that is the key to all of this. It's like, have you done your homework when it comes to performing before you start YouTube? Because if you actually want to be a professional musician and use YouTube as a tool to, to drive that, you know, drive an audience to your shows and stuff, if you haven't done the brutal hard work that is live performing before you then take a year or two or three to, to build the YouTube channel, you're going to be caught out 
because then even more people are watching. Um, I'm so glad that I, I got a lot of bad gigs out of my system. I'll still have bad gigs, obviously, but like, you know, other things will happen. But thank God. At least people know I can also sing in tune, sometimes sing in tune live and play guitar at the same time. Like at least that is evident because otherwise it would give me a lot of anxiety. Oh man, I'm not, I'm not going to call out anybody specific. Do it, do it. Let's well, cause YouTube drama. Well, I actually forgot <laughs> her name. Um, so the, uh, the Sungazer show um, in, all right, yeah, I guess we'll start some YouTube drama. Um, the, the Sungazer show in uh, LA, I, I'm not going to say the venue because then you can look it up, but we did a show in LA and we were the late show and there was an early show of a, a YouTuber um, who had gotten very, very famous by her YouTube videos. And they were like, um, I'll just say they were YouTube videos of just like her in her room singing songs. And they got mil millions and millions of views. And the show that she put on was this insane, ridiculous, over-the-top, like it was a small club and there was like, they brought in a lighting rig and a monitor guy and like a drum riser. And this is like a 200 cap room, by the way, so it's very small. And they put in so much effort into all of the accoutrement of live performance. But it was honestly one of the most, I'll, I'll just say it, I'll say it this way. It was not a very overwhelming performance. It was very much like uh, live auto-tune, singing to track. It was a very, very monotone performance. And... Not to knock this person because she's young and she's learning and she, the way that she got famous was through YouTube and not through live performance. But um, there is something to be said about just standing there and playing music. And the artifice of YouTube, it's a great thing. It's a great marketing tool, but it's not a replacement for the ability to stand there and play music live. And that is, there's, yeah, there's, there's something... Um, there's something just, yeah, pure about it. Like you, about getting up on a stage and not to fetishize this at all, but getting up on a stage and just playing and being comfortable playing. Cause it's really what it is, is the comfort, your personal comfort with being on a stage and performing. And that takes years. That takes so long to be able to do. It's not your technical ability. It's not your ability to sing. It's not anything like that. It's just being comfortable in your own skin and your own body on a stage. And that's very different than being comfortable and in your own skin in front of a camera. Definitely, because, you know, you can't edit yourself when you're on stage. Yeah, you can't be like, oh, another take. Oh, <laughs> shit. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh. I mean, pe I mean, people, people, you know, professionals uh, start and stop songs all the time and they say, oh, I forgot the lyrics or whatever. And, and that's the whole point of it being live. But they usually do it in a way that it doesn't throw them. They know how to restart it. They'll make fun of it. You know, ev everyone can forgive a mistake on stage. Actually, you know, that's pretty much the only place you should be making mistakes. As I know, the sort of classical... Uh, route is, you know, make sure your practice is perfect. And then once you get up on stage, you know, that's the whole point of it being live. But um, I, I just think it's really interesting in terms of feeling comfortable in your own skin. It comes from, yeah, you know, it translates to everything. It's not just about being on stage, but it's just about walking into a room and, and talking to people. The only way you are going to be the calmest person and the most sort of 
enjoyable to talk to as you walk into a room full of strangers or you know whether you're networking or whatever it's just like uh kind of do you have I don't know how to phrase this properly but you kind of have to have the least to lose so like it's like in any negotiation I always sort of see like live performance as a negotiation as well with the audience because like I've got I know I've done the hard work so I can walk up on stage and I can perform and so I don't I don't want to make you feel nervous by talking to me you know watching me perform I'm not making sense with this I'm thinking out loud I think there is several ideas in there that I agree with but I also don't quite know how to phrase them then okay so there's the idea that you want to be not nervous on stage so that the audience doesn't feel nervous I fully fully agree with that because man do I feel nervous for performers there's this empathy of the audience do you want the audience empathizes with the performer because essentially what music performance is is living vicariously through the person on the stage in one way or another. It's like listening to the music and dancing and moving your body, but there's also this element of like, wow, that person's cool. I, I wish I could feel that experience. And so as a performer, your job is to kind of give people that experience of being, being that cool, being that um, self-assured, being that vulnerable, being that human. Um, there's definitely this empathy thing. It's like a ritualized empathy of the audience and the performer, and then we're trying to come together that way. But then the idea of negotiation, I also feel like I agree with that. Or maybe it's not even negotiation, but the audience is judging. Like there's there's this, like before the rapport is established, there's like, all right, what's the, what's about to happen? Like there's, the audience is not on your side uh by default, you have to bring them on your side. Even if they came to see you perform, they're not really on your side. Um, there are two sides to this engagement. There's your side and their side, and you might want the same thing. You might want to come together, but at the same time, they are not with you, um, which creates this barrier. There's like almost this, I don't want to say antagonism, but there is, it's not the same thing. Nobody is on the same level. Um, that's how we do this. That's how live performance works usually. If it's a collective performance, if it's like a drum circle, it's very different. Or if it's like, you know, a sing-along or something like that it, without like a leader. Um, so th there's a lot of like interesting dynamics between performer and audience that you just kind of have to navigate. And if you haven't been navigating this dynamic for a while, it can be incredibly terrifying. It's one of the most terrifying experiences. Um, it's... It's like if for anybody who hasn't done it, it's like getting up in front of the class to do a class presentation and in school, except that's your job and you have to do that every day. And the audience, the class will be like visibly angry if you don't do it well. <laughs> so Yeah, and, and they have something on the line. They've they've financially invested in the show. Um Yeah, no, thanks for yeah, you've turned that around in terms of actually helping me make some sense but I guess the I'm, I'm not sure um, if that was at all what you were talking no, about no, but I wanted no, to talk that about that was it <laughs> that was that was it I think it's the the being in the best shape as well how did you stay fit on tour to be in the best shape because I came I came back from my tour and I was sick as a dog and I thought I was going into it in like relatively like healthy endeavors and then I realized I was like I cannot drink while I'm doing this I can't eat badly but all I had access to was beige food 
Because <laughs> <laughs> like you're, you're on the road and then you stop at a service station. It's not like... Yeah. I mean, oh, that's a great question. Uh, water, I generally try and avoid eating until the venue. Um, ah, fasting. Yeah, I try to do that. It didn't work all the time. Um, nuts, pro- like simple protein. I'm not the best at this. Um, our, our keyboard player, uh, Christian is absolutely amazing keyboard player, but also he he runs marathons and does like crazy like distance training. And so when we would stop, this is back in November, when we would stop at different um, like gas stations, he wouldn't like go out and rest. He would just run around the gas station. He would just like take laps for like, I don't know, 20 minutes. And then by the end, he would have run like a 5K. And I'm like, dude, that's insane. Um, and he was like, yeah, this is this is the only way that I can do this, like, on tour. Um, I don't recommend that for everybody, but it did get me thinking about, like, well, there are ways of at least hitting the gym while you're on tour. But most of it is, like, yeah, it's, it's not living like a human being unless you're doing the most insane, you know, if it's a bus tour and you're staying at really nice hotels every night and, you know, there's there's ways of doing it, but... I'm, we're that's, not at that's that level. That's not the reality. We're not at that level. Are you kidding? <laughs> no, definitely um, not. Yeah. I, I try and, and you know, that's another thing is, um, you know, I'm I'm 31. I'm about to be 32. Uh, I can't afford to do crappy bus tours, like crappy like van tours. I can't afford to be like crashing on people's couches and getting drunk every night. And uh, it's it's just a bare minimum of like, not only keeping myself together, but also, like, just respect for myself. And that's another thing. It's like, you respect yourself, guys. You should always respect yourself and what you do and your craft, and not just the music, but you. And, yeah, it's something I'm learning, too, is the best ways of doing that. That's really interesting, respect yourself. Yeah, there, there are definitely certain things that people sort of, yeah, you can't, there, there are just certain things that you just can't do now. Like... I know there's still the sort of, um, oh my God, who's the uh, incredible, she was in the Dresden Dolls, uh, absolute pioneer when it comes to online fan base. Amanda Palmer. Amanda Palmer. Yeah. Thank you. Um, She, you know, talks how she's got a book where it's like the, um, oh my God, I'm just murdering everything about this, but uh, the, you know, getting the ability to ask, like actually asking people. And it's like, yeah, there are certain things that you definitely ask. Like we ask people to support us on Patreon. We ask people to, we kind of ask Thanks, everybody. people to watch our videos and, and to come to shows. <laughs> but it's difficult to ask even more from some people. And maybe it's me also being English, but maybe it's also me being nearly 30. Um, and just, and also, yeah, the respect for yourself, like crashing on sofas. It's just not sexy. Like I've done it. I've done it. I I definitely did it. Um, but now it's just not sexy. <laughs> I mean, it is very unattractive. But the it, it's not even like I I would gladly ask people and people offer, yeah. Hey, are you like where are you staying? You can come crash at our place. Like people offer that and it's awesome and it's great. But there's this sense of like not being grounded enough in like where I am. Like I need to have like my own space at the end of the day, even if it's just for an hour, even if it's just in a crappy, crummy hotel, which it is. But like, that that's, that stuff is very important. And um, there is this ethos. Okay, so there's this one, um, 
It was a couple years ago, Pomplamoose. Do you know uh, Pomplamoose like Jack Hunt? Yeah, awesome band and great people. They released like a, um, a, a, I'm guessing like a blog or something, a Medium post, where they just were going through all of the finances of how they toured. So basically they toured like, I don't know, it was three weeks, and they ended up losing money, even though they were selling out all these venues. And one of the reasons why they sold, like lost money was they were paying their session musicians very well. They had a lighting rig. There was a whole like um, whole show that they had developed around the stuff. And so when you like added up all the numbers, and they did a very, they were very transparent. They were showing all the numbers of how all this stuff added up. They were like, yeah, we didn't make any money. We actually lost a fair amount of money based on the how we lived on this tour and what kind of tour it was and what the show was. And one of the interesting things I've always found about this article is that in the comments, people were angry. People were like viscerally angry about the fact that they lost money on this tour and the reasons why they lost money. Um, because they like, one, were paying their session musicians. They're like, you don't need to pay the session musicians or you don't need to pay them. Like, what's that about? And they were paying for hotels and like not even nice hotels. And they were like sleeping two to, two to a room. They're like, you could just crash at people's places. Like, why are you doing all this stuff? And the amount of anger surrounding musicians and touring musicians around quality of life things, basic quality of life too. Remember, this is a job and this is not something that's like vacation. Basic quality of life things were... Uh, people were just angry about. And I've always found that really interesting. It's feeling like musicians do not deserve to live basic lives without crashing on couches and like very basic quality of life things. Um, and I, that article always stuck with me and the reactions to the article always stuck with me because every other human being on the planet, um, you don't get angry if they live and sleep on a bed when they could be sleeping on the floor. But for whatever reason, touring musicians, you expect them to live on the floor of somebody's, uh, somebody's bedroom. And in your early 20s, sure. In college, sure. But I'm a, I'm a grown-ass adult, so. <laughs> well, and, and yeah, we can't speak for everyone. I feel like our our loyal supporters would be like yeah please have a hotel like we we see how hard you work we know you know even if it is a crummy hotel like have a bed um rather than someone's couch and especially when you're looking after musicians you know if if they're if you're a session musician session musicians can go on the road and still make a loss and they don't have any of the equity behind it being their own show so if you don't pay them well it's it's just a night, you know, it's just, it's something you just can't do to another human being, especially as being like the person whose name is on the ticket. That's different. If you make a loss, you make a loss, that's your responsibility, but you can't ask musicians who are helping you. It's like you wouldn't ask employees in a company to work for you for free unless, unless they are doing an internship and there is some sort of like, you know, that sort of dynamic. But most musicians, the musicians that we want to be playing with don't need to do that. They don't need to intern anymore. They can charge good money. Um, yeah, it's, it is, it's very difficult to navigate all of this. Um, but you're crushing it. Oh, thank you. Well, it seems like you're crushing it too. I mean, you crushing the YouTube game. I, uh, I even told you in a text and you were curious about like what it was. Um, I, I see within a year or two, you exceeding everybody else 
uh, in our sphere, just based on how fast you're growing and also the widespread appeal of what it is that you do. Um, you're, yeah, crushing the YouTube game, so. Well, that's that's very, very sweet of you to say. I don't, mm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to rest on my laurels and just be like, cool, Adam Neely says I'm going <laughs> to... And also, you know, everyone everyone is growing so massively right now. It's so exciting. What I've what I've definitely seen is um, how different the response is now to all of us that have kind of like I like to sort of think of us like all growing up together from like the first the first um, Gearhead University that Toman did where where you and I met and we met so many other people through those sorts of events where we all grouped together and, and we get to spend a week together making videos and just hanging out two years ago right god only a year and a half oh my gosh i've only known you for a year and a half i feel like i've no yeah may of 2018 that is not a very long time um well so i i'm intrigued to see where this all goes because it's just like we were all kind of the underdogs you know even if someone had a massive channel that was like at you know 500 I met Paul Davids at, at Montreux Jazz Festival, and that was 2018. Um, and he was on 600K. So, like, his his growth is just ridiculously good. Um, but it's now, like, it's now thinking, making sure that we still show our audiences. It's literally still us. It's still us editing our videos, still filming them. Um, although the numbers are changing the people haven't changed, but I've definitely noticed a shift in us being memed way more. I mean, you've always been memed because you're, you're so meme, you're so memeable, but we're now, it's all, it's all super strange. It's super strange. I'm excited to see where it goes though. I feel like I'm resilient enough to be able to handle it now. Oh, cause you've been doing it for a second and it's like, it's, it's not, you're also an adult. Uh, I feel like the, the, pr the pressures with, yeah, it really truly is. If, if, all this stuff happened to me 10 years ago. I, oh my gosh. Have you been recognized on the street? Like, uh, when you go out just in life? I don't really go out anymore. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I've been recognized at my local pub. Uh, you and I got recognized in Salisbury that one time. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you literally thought I knew the guy and I was like, I don't know the guy, but he wasn't all that impressed to see us. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's Adam Ely and Mary Spender. Hmm. And I kept walking. <laughs> yeah. You kept walking and I was like, please love me. Yes. Tell me how fabulous I am. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just bearing all my insecurities. Okay. Actually, I do have a, a question from one of my Patreon supporters. Uh, and this comes from David. How does, uh, how do you deal with receiving hate in YouTube comments? And, and also how do I, um, it's my biggest reason for not posting videos aside a general lack aside a general lack of time and talent <laughs> that's so humble thanks david but um how do you deal with hate adam neely i ignore it i well okay so for the longest time i ignored it or i trolled back so like if somebody was like left a really long just comment just hating on whatever it is i was posting i just would type sorry period or like th things like that. <laughs> and people immediately like, wait, no, wait, what? Because when you say, when you apologize for hateful comment, but like blase apology, um, that takes all the power out of them personally. But at the same time, it might affect you. Um, 
I've stopped reading comments as much as I used to because it got too much. Even if the comments are great and lovely and there's some fantastic discussions happening in the comment section, sometimes there's those one or two that get to you. Um, I've seen basically it all. I've seen all the stuff that might hurt me as a straight white male, um, which is not that much. But at the same time, like I've seen everything that I might personally be um, like self-conscious about, comments about my body or anything like that. Uh, I ignore it and I move on, basically. That's the only way of dealing with it. Either troll, which doesn't always end well, or ignore it. And it, it can be difficult. That is a, a very serious um, issue, especially if you're part of a marginalized group, because people will go for the jugular because it's anonymous and it's terrible and YouTube comment sections are the worst place on the planet. But how do you deal with it, Mary? Well, much the same way. I think we've all had discussions about it and I have always kind of, you know, at first I had like this little tight-knit community before I even hit 3,000 and then I went on Andertons and that opened me up to a wider audience and with a wider audience comes not just people who appreciate what you're doing but also people definitely who do not appreciate what you're doing and um, you kind of just have to stand your ground like who's going to win here like those those people um, I actually want to feel empathy for them too and, and not in a patronizing way not in a patronizing way whatsoever it's just like if you're spending five minutes of your day commenting something like we've both seen on our youtube channels um you're not in a good place you just can't be i know like i've spoken to all the people i love in my life and i'm just like have you ever spent five minutes of your day absolutely rinsing somebody on youtube and they're like no and i'm like cool those are the people i care about if someone is absolutely rinsing me, then fine. It, I, I don't read comments too. I I keep an eye on things. We all have to. We all have to monitor certain things. But I just I don't bother anymore. And I think it's you know there's a there's a rule. I can't remember who someone incredibly famous said this, but it's like never apologize and never explain unless you've done something really like illegal. <laughs> if you've done something illegal and you're a politician or a, pub, a public figure, then you have to apologize and you have to explain just to save yourself. But when it comes to normal, when it comes to normal career decisions and literally just putting out nice music videos, you don't need to apologize and you don't need to explain yourself every day of the week. Um, I hope I've been safe in terms of saying that because I know that can be difficult to get across. I've uh, I've taken your that advice before from you, like, several times just like getting angry about things on the internet because things I get I can get very upset about certain things but um it's it's better it always is better to ignore it if there's not no immediate physical danger and if there's no deleterious effect on your career it's yeah it's important to let it wash over you and the idea of like also spending that time on a comment section people feel like you have something that they don't and people feel like you have success and all the good things because you have an audience of a large like YouTube channel. And there's a, a degree of, especially if somebody is feeling lost or feeling like they aren't getting the respect that they deserve or respect that they do deserve because everybody deserves at least a baseline level of respect, it's, an, it's, a, uh, it's a target. Like everybody who is, have, is a YouTube channel 
is a target because they see you or me as having a fair amount of respect from their peers or respect from people around them. And that's immediately can be very, not to misuse the word triggering for people. Um, so your idea of em empathizing with people who comment negative things, I do fully agree with, which is why it's so important to actually ignore it or not troll back, which was what my normal impulse was. Um, but yeah, it, it's an interesting it's an interesting place that we are in where we are receiving direct vitriolic negative feedback constantly. And that's, that's new. Like that's not something, maybe politicians deal with this, but that's like not what um, musicians have traditionally had to deal with. They might get a bad review and then that might like stick with them for a long time. But that happens like, but that happens, you know, once, I don't know, maybe it didn't Every really... album cycle or something, yeah. yeah. Not yeah. like once daily based on a video that you released. Like it, yeah, it's not, not... not once every minute. <laughs> it's not immediate and pummeling. And so there's there's a, a skin, like a thick skin you kind of have to develop or just straight up ignore. Um, and you kind of have to do both, but... Yeah, and, and when you do find both and you learn to have both, you it just suddenly, it frees up a lot of your mental health energy to be able to keep on creating. Because we've all gone through it. We've all gone through those weak moments where you have checked your comments and oh, it can really destroy your self-esteem. And the whole point of being a musician is us standing up on stage crying, like, please love me. Like, we all know that. Um, but yeah, that's, I think all of that is just, it's just growth and just like making sure you're always trying to better yourself a little bit every day to garner that respect that you actually do want. And um, yeah, you can't do that if you're looking at people just hating on you all the time. Well, and there's there's a weird thrill about it too. Um, there's this term, there's a YouTuber, ContraPoints, she has this term, the masochistic epistemology, which basically is the idea that anything that hurts us, like a negative comment, must be true. And it's an odd idea, but it, it does, one of the reasons that um, we stick or like we fixate on negative comments so much, like we get the one negative comment and then like a hundred amazing comments that just said, we love you, this was amazing content, but we fixate on that one because it hurt us. And the feeling that because it hurt us, there must be an element of truth to it. Even if there isn't any truth whatsoever to the negative comment, we have this instinctual idea that something that hurts us has a degree of truth to it. and. And because of that, um, we fixate on these things. We fixate on things that we think are true, even if they aren't necessarily that. And that's what's so important about ignoring everything. Sorry, I'm getting text, text right now. Uh, that's what's so, <laughs> so popular. <laughs> I'm so popular. Um, yeah, so it, that's why we fixate on these things and why it's so important to ignore them, because they aren't necessarily true. There might not be any truth to them whatsoever, even if they are so negative and affect us so much. Um, but, you know, do you, do you, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you get, like, negative comments on, like, Instagram or, like, Twitter or th other uh, social media channels that you're not, like, looking to grow as explicitly as YouTube? Yeah, I, I post I post daily to um, all of them. So, y yeah, they're smaller communities. So, again, they're not as uh, – the hate isn't as amplified. Um but again, I, you know, there's only so much time you can spend 
commenting back. I think it's really important in the early stages of a YouTube channel to literally comment on everything and, and, and really monitor and see where you can improve when you're small. But it gets to a certain point where it's just it's not worth your time to comment back to every single little comment um, when those people are also expecting you to deliver another video the next week, if not in within a few days. But yeah, it's um no, I I I just I don't interact really to any of it. Well, I've got a few more uh, Patreon questions because um, uh, they're interesting, although. Arthur asks, can you talk about how you two recorded together on different continents, which we didn't actually do, although we're doing it right now. We didn't actually do because you recorded all the, well, we're kind of recording right now. Oh, um, oh yeah. We, oh, yeah. Hey. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, when you did bass for Lone Wolf, we were, I was in, I was crashing with you in New York. There's also something about that. Like, it's a lot easier if they're actually, you know, it's easy to record remotely and technically you didn't need to be there, but it was just nice to be like, hey, do you like this idea? Rather than having to go back and forth. Um, so it was it was a lot easier to physically be in the same place. I, I, I know because recording interfaces are so inexpensive and it's so easy to record remotely, there is the temptation to always do that, but there's something about the creative process of being physically in the same room that I think is a lot more... It's just a lot more productive. Yeah, I think even if you do, so I would trust you now um, because we've actually been in the same room together to record parts. Like it's just how I did it with Rhett. Like, yeah, I'd, I'd get it now. The, the foundation has been set, but initially always try and be in the same room. Um, okay, so Ross asks, uh, how do you go beyond your impressive depth of knowledge, theory and technique to play with musicality and feel? And at what point did it go from conscious struggle to unconscious mastery? Oh, he's trying to flatter you. <laughs> <laughs> Why, thanks. The flattery is accepted and very much appreciated. Um, there are two, yeah, there are two sides of it. There's the wonkish book smart brain, and then there's the intuitive uh, reactionary, not, not reactionary, the intuitive side of like my musicianship, which is mu very much based on listening, feeling, um, all the good things that are associated with performing. You can't think your way into a good musical performance. There's something fundamentally embodied about performing, meaning like you have to practice. You have to get the music in your body. You have to learn how to move. You have to learn how to feel things uh, away from all of the wonkish knowledge of uh, scales, chords, theory, etc., and that's always been that's been always hard for me because the wonkish side of things, that intellectual side of things, quote unquote, has come the most naturally to me. And actually, just performing and doing the stuff that actually really truly matters uh, always has felt difficult because I've always felt like a little bit um, not super comfortable in my own skin. Like when we're talking about performing, um, it's always felt like a little bit too, I don't know, like, it's always felt too close to me. And if I could just retreat inside my head and just, like, think, oh, I like the C major scale, and uh, uh, that's not even that complicated. C7 sharp 11, the Lydian diminished on that. Well, versus the Lydian dominant, technically Lydian diminished. Okay, anyway. Um, so it's been a struggle, and it's been something that I've been thinking about more recently, embodying it, feeling things rather than thinking things. Uh, intuition versus 
judgment, like all these all these kinds of things. And it's been almost a personality shift in me over the past couple of years to be able to do that. Um, I'm not sure if that's the best answer, but there's definitely two sides of the whole thing. But thank you for the flattery, and I appreciate it. <laughs> no, I, I also couldn't, like, I couldn't agree more. Um, okay, so... Uh, Elia asks, there are lots of different ways to learn theory and understand it, but where she struggles is trying to apply it. Uh, she can't figure out how to practice the things she learns to the point that it actually sticks. Um, so she's asking for tips and thoughts, like a quiz or something. A quiz. Well, the, the big thing with theory is that its most direct application in terms of scales and chords usually is in jazz music because... With jazz, you have to ha have some basic foundational knowledge of arpeggios and chords and structures in order, uh, in order for you to improvise. You don't technically need to know the structures of music to be able to perform it, and so the direct application of some of the more heady theoretical things that you're thinking about is sometimes hard to like actually apply. The big thing I think that everybody can do is ear training. Um, so being able to listen to certain things and then identify intervals while you're listening to them. Like, in this melody, the leap from this note to this note is a major third. Uh, in this melody, the leap from this note to this note is a major sixth or something like that. So to me, being able to ear train, listening to music, and then identifying elements within that music is the fastest and most direct way of applying theoretical knowledge to what you're actually performing and playing. And it's also super practical because to be able to identify those intervals in music, you can take that knowledge and then apply it to other kinds of music that you're making or listening to. And it's very exciting too once you start doing this. You can hear like, oh, that's the one chord. Uh, because that's the one chord that feels like it's home, I can hear the one chord in this song and I can hear the one chord in this other song too. And it's a similar feeling when I hear that chord in both songs. Uh, or that's the five chord in this song. And because it's the five chord, I can hear that. I can hear the relationships between these two chords. I can then expect this feeling of resolution from five to one. So connecting your theoretical study to ear training, your ears, I think is the most important and most practical thing with any of this stuff. Um, it's a hard thing, though, and a lot of people ask, like, how do you actually apply the theoretical knowledge? I think listening, learning to listen to things, and then, like, naming what it is that you are listening to, I think that's the most direct way of applying any kind of theoretical knowledge. Yeah, and, and, and you can start off so simple. Um, I was just, I was with a friend, and they were just playing guitar strings, just open guitar strings, and being like, what's, what's this note? And... I have not done that in a while and I was kind of like, you know, once you've got the first one, then obviously you could just use relative pitch to figure it out. But even then just getting my brain back in order and I'm, I am trying to uh, re-educate myself and, and kind of include it in my uh, self-care, which is such an awful thing to say. I can't believe I even said that. Um, but in the mornings, I know to avoid checking emails or doing any work technical or creative any work until I've done an hour's guitar practice um and gone to the gym and that's my new like foundation of a day because I'm like even if that's all I if that's all I do in a day that's still like a good day <laughs> um so and it's not always just like theory and uh, it's it's not always ear training either but just it's like I've been learning a song that's really tricky and just like just figuring out within 
even those sorts of challenges like particular songs like why does it sound good that's I just think song is the best way to learn any of this stuff for me and I guess you know I should probably start looking into jazz way more because jazz improvisation all my favorite musicians have a foundation in jazz to be able to improvise over any style of music hey we should do a video <laughs> I'll, I'll take it take a take a jazz lesson with me that'll be a fun one Let's do that video. That would be great. I'm going to come across so stupid, um, but that will be good. Jazz, jazz is easy. It's just you play, you play notes and then you play some other notes, but you didn't think to play those other notes before you played the first notes. It's, it's, it's easy. And, and you're, only ever, you're only ever one note away, right? Yeah, yeah. And even, even still, those wrong notes, yeah, it can be fine. It's jazz. <laughs> okay, so we kind of touched upon this already, but... Um, Bilal asks, how difficult is it for you to balance your life between content creation, touring, musical projects, and your personal life? It's very difficult. Um, yeah, I will I will open up and say that it would be very difficult for me right now to have a kid. I know a lot of people in my in our like age brackets are starting to have children. And that would be very difficult for me um, to make room in my life for anything that is beyond just what's in front of me, the content creation, the musical projects, all that stuff. Um, I have enormous respect for anybody who can do that sort of thing, but it, you can tell very, uh, you can tell that it's a struggle for them too. So for me, um, I think the important thing, like you, you're talking about self-care, like, okay, I know that this is how, it might, it might not count as personal life, but this is how I still stay balanced in all of this. Uh, I try and run, most days I try and run. Um, I drink lots of water. I will take frequent breaks if I'm feeling overwhelmed and play chess on chess.com, which is my new thing. I like playing chess online. Hey. Um, all, all these things to just have the mental and like mental focus and also feel balanced enough so I don't feel overwhelmed with any one particular thing. Because I've been doing this for a while. I've been making content on YouTube, I've been playing music, I've been recording, I've been doing all this stuff for a while now. And it's a very solitary existence, which is, as you know, it's like, this is always exciting. Like, hey, YouTuber, hey, let's talk about how stressful everything is right now. Oh my God, doesn't matter what kind of YouTube you do. Be a, like a gaming vlogger or something. Like, let's, let's YouTube together. Um, so that's like, it's, it's a balance, and it's always remembering to respect this, respect myself, um, not at the expense of anything that I'm doing or trying to create. I think that's the big takeaway from YouTube and this life that I'm living right now. Do you want to know what I've done to try and balance myself? And I think this is the first time I'd, I'm admitting to it, but I've been I've been doing it for a few weeks, and because I'm at home at the moment and other than a few bits and bobs here uh, here and there like of traveling I'm probably going to be here quite a lot for the next few months and um so getting into a routine has been really luxurious and really enjoyable but I've divided because what I realized is like no matter how successful you are no matter how much money you have you only have the same amount of hours in a day so I have literally divided up <laughs> a day and try to get a certain balance in terms of like how much sleep because I've been working out a lot um so I need way more sleep I and it's sleep has always been like I've always been like 
it's for the weak. Um, no, it's for I'm, the lazy. I'm, I'm, I'm and, thinking the made hours. <laughs> and and now and now I'm like, oh my god, I feel so different now. Like this is so nice, and I can actually make better stuff. Um, uh, so sleep, exercise, guitar practice, which does not. I used to count it as work. Now it's not. It's completely separate. I do not see it as work. It's just like life. It's a thing I have to do to be sane and be able to do my job, but but also just for me personally. Um, creative work, technical work, social life, errands. And what's the other thing? Oh, you have a social life in there. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> well, I, I allow for social time. And, and that's not always going out for a drink. That might just be like a phone call with a friend. But, um, you know, and some days it's like, it's not even, it, maybe it's just a social hour with myself. Um, I've forgotten one other thing, but I can't remember. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> this is going to sound really weird, but like kind of like education, like whether or not that's just actually reading a nonfiction book or a fiction book um, or going to an art gallery or doing something, something that's like there's no financial gain whatsoever, but it's enhancing and will make me a more interesting person to other people and to myself too. That's an interesting, interesting person to yourself. I, I think about that a lot. Like, am I, am I interesting? Am I trying to interest myself, make myself interesting to me? Um, I, I think, I don't know, it, that idea of like self-enrichment for your own benefit. Yeah. I'm very much on board with that. Um, maybe part of that is maybe part of the traveling and touring now is for that so that I feel like I am more worldly or feel like that I have seen more and interacted with more and talked to more people um, because it's enormously rewarding that way. Touring is exhausting, but it's so rewarding for the sense of like, I have now seen stuff. I've done that thing. Um, now that can inform my decisions in the future. And that's, you know, as long as I'm taking care of my body while I'm doing that, I think that's along the same idea. You have to like yourself to win this whole game. Like, that's that's it. Like, you have to be do able you like to yourself? do the things. Uh, <laughs> it's, an, it's an ongoing battle. Um, Therapy with Adam and Mary. <laughs> it's it's always an ongoing battle, obviously. And, and, and I think if anyone's arrogant enough to be like, yeah, I really like myself, then... Yeah, probably don't. But but it's sort of learning. Always like learn to like yourself. Like, I don't know. I don't know. Like, oh no, maybe maybe I'm being too short, too cutting. Mm. Well, do, I, do you like yourself, Emma? It's a good question. I think for the most part, yes. Although I do, the more that I think about myself, the more glaring flaws I see in myself that are. I can forgive. I can forgive those flaws. So that's been the the thing of being forgiving the fact that I do this, forgiving the fact that I do this. Whereas before it was just like things I just hated, and now it's like, well, this is who I am. I know how to um, improve upon these things, and because I can make a conscious effort to improve upon these things, I like myself a lot better for the effort to improve them. Um, this is. <laughs> I'm not sure if this is at all entertaining content for your viewers, but this is what I am thinking about too. Um, you know, like 
making a YouTube video is something I, I do very well. I know how to make a YouTube video. Like I, I not even, this is something also that I, I took from Victor Wooten, the bass player, is recognizing what it is that you do very well and saying it is not arrogance. It's literally just stating the fact because to provide false humility to it um, is also a kind of arrogance. And so I know what it is that I do very, very well, and I can say it. I feel nothing about, like I don't derive self-pleasure from the fact that I do this well. It's just something that I do well. Um, but then there's all these other things that I don't do well, like balance life, balance social relationships, um, just <laughs> uh, empathize with certain people versus others. That's what I want to try and do more and more of. And I can also stay very... Um, dispassionate about those like things I don't do well and just accept them for who I am and know that I can work work on those things too. I, I think it's just realizing like we're all doing the best that we can really and and if you're not if you're avidly not doing the best that you can then that's seek professional help. <laughs> I don't know I don't if you're if you are constantly at your own throat um, that's not very healthy. And yeah, I think you're right. I, I have never thought about it that way. Um, okay, let's move on to lighter questions before oh, we get into okay. therapy hour. Which album or artist have you recommended to your family and friends the most? Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly. I mean, most people know that album, but I think that is the best album of the 2010s. And I think it's also the best jazz album too, because I feel like that album, To Pimp a Butterfly, is a continuation of the tradition of jazz music, black American music, in um, in that particular tradition and its its biggest culmination in terms of collaboration between musicians, artistic statement that Kendrick Lamar was making, hip hop, everything. It's an amazing, amazing record. And I think more people should listen to it, even though it's already considered an amazing masterpiece. I think it, it really truly is one of the masterpieces of the modern era. Perfect answer. Thank you. If you could have a drink with any musician, dead or alive, who would it be and what would you ask them? I'd have like a, a, a lemonade with Victor Wooten. <laughs> I wouldn't want to get drunk with Victor Wooten. I feel like he's way too classy. Um, and I'd, I'd, I'd want to ask him about how his relationship with music has changed over his life. Like he, he's a person who started playing music very, very young and he's it seems like he's kept, kept a very healthy relationship with music and his understanding of music up through his adulthood. And I just want to talk to him about how he feels about the music that he makes, um, which, you know, that, I'm sure I'll get a chance to ask him in person at some point, but that, that's something that I've always been interested in, like the relationship as a kid you have to music, to like a teenager, to a younger adult, to an older adult, and like how that has changed throughout his life. Um, that's probably how... Yeah. I mean, that could literally happen. Have you seen Have you seen Tyler's video with him? Yeah, that's yeah, great video. <laughs> he killed it. It's, very, it, yeah, very really jealous good. that he did. He got to do that. But <laughs> <laughs> we're we're all jealous of Tyler Larson. There we go. Um, uh, okay, tell me about your favorite piece of music gear, or it doesn't actually have to be music related whatsoever. Just a piece of tech and the story behind it. I'm gonna cop out and say my. My favorite piece of gear is just my 2010 Mexican P-Bass 
Fender Mexican P bass. And the reason has nothing to do with the instrument itself, although the instrument's nice, I like playing it. But the reason why I like it so much is because it's been the thing that's been constant throughout my entire professional career. And I have it, and it feels more totemistic and feels more like an extension of my body than necessarily a piece of gear, which it is. It's like wood and strings, but there's so much story behind that one piece. And I feel like that's the case for any time that you have a musician who has just a piece of gear, or guitar, or instrument. There's a story that goes along with it. There's a feeling, an intimate feeling that you have with a piece of gear because you've traveled everywhere with it. You've played all these gigs, shitty gigs, amazing gigs, mediocre gigs, long gigs. And it's just been this constant thing that's been right next to you that you've been interacting with, that you've been using to express an idea, an emotion, a feeling. And because of that, um, it is my favorite piece of gear, even though objectively it's, yeah, it's okay. And if I handed it to somebody, they'd be like, yeah, it's, it's okay bass. But it's so much more. It's my personal um, just history with it. And I think that's going to be the case with anything. So that's my favorite piece of gear. And that is way better than my answer. What is your answer? <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't asked myself these questions yet, but obviously in terms of non-music gear, I really love my Apple Watch. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's really helped me. It's helped me a lot. And it's, the, it's you know, it's, it's wearable tech, which is just an awful thing to say. I was going to say... It's a little GoPro. Like, I, I, love, I love my GoPro. They're super useful. I like putting it at the end. I'm trying to think of, like, a specific piece of non-music tech that I'm just like, yes, this thing. That, that shot at the end of your bass guitar is always incredible oh it's it's so much fun <laughs> and, and i don't think it works as well on guitar because like a bass guitar is firstly bass guitar is already big enough that putting something at the end of it is not it's not taking up the whole thing whereas if i put it on a guitar especially with the the little clips that i have it's quite like an obvious thing that i'd probably only be able to do in here and just you know if i was doing like a multi-camera shoot or something it looks really weird on stage. Some people have said, like, don't put put it on there, yeah. It does look weird, but then the shot. Yeah, it looks, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I love that, it's so much fun. Okay, uh, final question. If you could give yourself, if you could give your younger self a word of musical advice, what would it be? Don't be afraid to make artistic music. So I grew up with a family of musicians and a lot of the time I was afraid like they, they did well, um, like my mom's side of the family, they did well, but they were very much working musicians and session musicians. And I thought that that was basically what I wanted to do, session music work. And I was always like, all right, I got to make sure that I have enough session music to survive. So I'm going to play all these sessions and teach all these lessons and do all that stuff. Um, at the expense of trying to like work on my craft of like, all right, what is it that I really want to say and really want to do? And I, I was, I never thought that doing that sort of thing, making art, quote unquote, or like making my own personal music was financially viable. Um, and so I have always struggled with that. And it's only been recently where I have like a YouTube channel to support and Patreon. Thank you so much patrons for supporting my channel. It's patrons like you, which make my channel possible. Um, <laughs> um, not to be afraid. I think that's the big thing. Don't like let go. Don't be afraid. Things are going to work out. Um, you are uh, the things that you project about your own life generally will come true. 
And so if you are projection projecting this fear or projecting this uh, small-mindedness, I guess, about like what you could do, that's all that you will be able to do. So I think that would be the thing that I would tell my younger self. What about you? What would you tell your younger self? It's important to, when you are a musician, whether you're a session player or orchestral player or a teacher or something, is to like do something for you always. If you are lucky enough to have something that is in vogue, like, you know, people who have sat in their bedrooms for years and now are doing really, really well in terms of like uh, lo-fi beats and stuff like that, where they've just like crafted these beautiful things that people are now absolutely obsessed with. If you start doing that sort of thing just for the money or you try and jump on the trend, you're already too late. So, so accept that you're already too late. Don't try and do something that doesn't come it doesn't bring you joy like I, I've found this with with rock music like I and I I used to call myself pop music and I was like what am I doing it's not pop music I'm not even trying to do pop um it's it's a normal band um two guitarists possibly no keyboard player whatsoever I've sort of tried to dive into the sort of soul side and I was like I just want two guitarists on stage and I want a bass guitarist and I want a drummer and I want to sing not to say that I don't want to collaborate with other artists who do other types of music better than me. And I think that's the way to actually make that sort of music. Like I really want to um, uh, work with our friend Rachel K. Collier because her production is just incredible and she sees things in songs that I don't see. But then maybe I can bring something else to the table as well. So it's just like figure out what your thing is. And this goes for guitar players or instrumentalists as well. Like what kind of player do you want to be? Because there are only so many hours in the day. Like you cannot be a master of all things. Um, same same with, you know, YouTube as well. It's like, if you're jumping on YouTube just to make money, then <laughs> you're, you're screwed. Like it's not as easy as that. You have to live and breathe it. And you have to, you have to fall in love with these things before you even attempt to do it yourself. Um, so yeah, I, I, I feel like maybe my message would be rather similar. Like it would be like, just don't worry about people telling you that it's unfashionable or out of date. It's like, or, or not legitimate. Cause it's like, does, does it come naturally to you? Is that the thing you want to be saying? Um, because you never know, you never know. It might be 10 years time, but rock music might really, really come back in full force. And it's kind of already showing its head a bit more. Um, because of because of the online space. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking like Alabama Shakes, like what they do. That you know, music I guess is from the 1970s, but like it was huge, like huge. It also feels like hugely current. Um, there's the oh God. There's a teacher of mine who said that um, what is original, what you find. Uh, so in order to be original, quote unquote, whatever that means, you have to go with the thing that's the most staggeringly obvious to you. And that can be like, well, I, this is the thing that I do. I, I know it's dumb. Like nobody's going to want to do it. Like nobody's going to want to listen to it. If you have that impulse, that's probably what you should be doing. The thing that feels just like the most obvious, the most pedestrian, the most like whatever is the thing that you're probably the best at that nobody else can do because you're having that impulse to just get rid of it because it feels too easy to you. It feels too like, 
obvious. Like, eh, I want to do this thing, or I should be doing this thing. And I, you know, I'm not sure if that's 100% true, but I've had that impulse about a ton of things. Like, yeah, it's stupid. Eh, um, but generally speaking, the stuff that I've done, you know, that that feels the best once I accept it, it comes at some point from an impulse like that. Um, the stuff that's the most staggeringly obvious is probably the most original, quote unquote, if there is such thing to be original. So that's something that I, I think is important and would be important to tell a younger version of myself too. That was incredible. Uh, I mean, everyone knows where to find you. AdamNeely.gov. <laughs> YouTube.com slash AdamNeely.gov. um but thanks for your time yeah thank you for interviewing me it's always nice to talk to you super fun to catch up with adam via this podcast i hope you enjoyed it now for information on the sponsor of this entire series more than 250,000 artists rely on distrokid to distribute their music including myself if you're wanting to have your music available on spotify itunes apple music and tidal amongst many more stores then you should sign up using the link in the description An account starts at just $19.99 for unlimited songs and albums in 12 months. And with the link in the description, you'll get 7% off your first year. Here are some of the benefits you'll find at DistroKid. Automatic revenue splits. Just tell them who to pay and how much to pay them. They'll do the rest. Hyperfollow. You'll have a pre-save marketing page within minutes of uploading your music. Once your release goes live on all the stores, they'll add links to the same page automatically. Lyrics support, add lyrics to your songs and they'll send them to stores for you. Global timed release dates, your release will go live at the exact same time everywhere on Spotify. Massive thanks to DistroKid for making this series possible and check out the link in the description for that 7% discount. But otherwise, I'll see you next week.